that's one of the greatest stories in the whole Bible, the prodigal son. The When we had it not too long ago, the thing that really impressed me is the fact that no sinner ever gets closer than a long way off. Especially, that's in their own estimation and, and uh, according to the scriptures. That's when the father runs and... and uh, Hugs him, gives him a kiss, gives him a new garment. And we're in Romans 8 this morning. Romans 8, and we've reached down to uh, 33. We read verses 31, 32, and 33. Maybe we'll read 34 so you'll be ready for next week too. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here's it for today. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, another precious portion of thy word and precious soul standing before us this morning. We ask that each heart would be open to receive truth, that thy spirit will take this word home to hearts, including the heart of thy speaker. We ask to learn more about our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. It's good to see you all here this morning. I think we've got more here this morning than we did for Easter Sunday. Our folks went visiting on Easter. So the other churches must have, or maybe it wasn't just a church. But anyhow, good to see you all here this morning. Let me read our verse to you again. Who shall I anything? To the charge of God's elect, it is God that justifieth. title of our message this morning is God's elect are blameless. Now this is the fourth question in a series of six. That if you answer all six correctly, you can win several fabulous prizes. The first prize in this donated by the Son of God is eternal life. This is kind of a double first prize, for with eternal life you get forgiveness of sins. And along with that is an all-expense trip paid to heaven. And for that trip you'll be given a new body that won't sin so you can enjoy everything you see. But that's not all. For that new body you'll receive a new wardrobe consisting of a robe of righteousness. This again is provided for by the Son of God. And last but not least, you won't have to travel alone, but you will be adopted into God's family where all the prize winners are assembled. Now for that big question again. It's a toughie because it's in sheep talk. Remember, you have just a lifetime to come up with the right answer or you lose everything. Here's the question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now, Paul, you went and used that word again. When you know that half of the religious world doesn't understand what it means, 
and the other half that understands hate it. Now, you see, this isn't a game show that you watch just to entertain yourself. You folks are actually in this game. And you are very fortunate to be able to have these questions presented to you. Only the few ever face these questions. Millions upon millions of people never get to even hear the questions that are facing you today. What about this word elect, who are said to belong to God? Is this some person with special privileges? I'll give you an example of the special privileges that the elect have. First of all, our Lord Jesus was called elect in Isaiah 42.1, our first scripture this morning, turn there. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. That scripture is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. What kind of special privileges did he have? Well, turn to Isaiah 53 and look at verses 3 through 9. Isaiah 53, 3 through 9. Here's the privileges of the elect of the elect. He's despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. All right, is that privileges of the elect? I'm just reading them to you. Here's a little list of the privileges that the apostle Paul had. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 through 14. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. And even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands, being revived and are the offscarring of all things unto this day. 
Well, I have one more. Verses 23 through 28. Pleasure in prisons more frequent and deaths off. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes. I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. And journeyings often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of mine own countrymen and perils of the heathen. In perils of the city and perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea and perils. Here's the best one. The worst one. Among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness and watchings often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So we had better redefine that word elect. To a person chosen of God to suffer humiliation, shame, the hatred of the world, sometimes physical abuse, separation from the world and its systems. In fact, one who despises the world and its broad way. Does the world have a broad way? We'll turn to Matthew 7.13. Matthew 7.13. Always good to review here. Part of the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew 7.13 says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, the person that finds it will be called narrow-minded because his mind is on the narrow way. Now, the second part of this verse says, It is God that justifieth. Now, our verse I'm talking about is in Romans 8, 33. Keep your ribbon there or your or piece of paper or something so you can keep coming back to 8, 33. It is God that justifieth. Now, let me explain something here. God does not justify a sinner because they are elect. He justifies them because they are called. See the order in verse 30. Verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, there is a seemingly very dangerous part of the elect's life and that is before he or she is called by God. Yet Ephesians 2, 3 says that they're children of wrath, even as others. But even there, the grace of God preserves you until he sees fit to quicken your heart. Let's turn over to Ephesians 2 now, and we'll catch all those scriptures at one time. Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, 
among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, this is it now, every individual, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And I told you there was a big difference now. The difference comes in verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Now the question given here in our lesson today is not that there won't be any to charge or accuse Christ's sheep, but no matter how many or how strong the accuser or how accurate the accusation, it won't stick because it's God which justifies. And the word justifies gives us a clue that sin is the subject and object brought against the sheep. Now the first ground of any believer's trouble is sin, the guilt of which raises many doubts and fears within us, which are removed by justification. There are no accusers before God that we need to be afraid of, but there are accusers, chief of which is Satan. Did you know that? Look at Revelation 12.10. It'll explain to you why Satan is an accuser. Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now you see, this is still future. So right now, Satan is accusing you and I before God the Father day and night. Has he got any just grounds for accusation? You bet he does, because we're sinners. We're sinners. Then the world accuses us. Look at 1 Peter 4.4. 4. 1 Peter 4.4. 4. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right speaking evil of you. That's the world, your old friends. That can be your family. That can be your neighbors or the people you work with. When God begins to deal with a sinner, there's changes made and the world's going to accuse you. And then our own heart can accuse us. Turn to 1 John 3.20. 1 John 3.20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Now, too often there is too much ground for the accusation. The devil is often a slanderer and the world hates us, according to John seventeen fourteen, And the heart may give a wrong judgment because it can't be trusted. Now, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. That thing can accuse you. But when they are right, 
and the believer cannot deny the accusation, yet there is a remedy for the penitent believer. It is vain to accuse those whom God upon just reasons acquits. God is not in danger to be persuaded or mistaken by false accusation. You know, there are people that can bribe the judge or turn the story around and then the judge will get the wrong... No, this does not happen with God. Now, who is all of this about? Our scripture says God's elect. Those whom God hath chosen before the foundation of the world and now truly believing in Christ, these are justified. For otherwise, they're condemned already. Look at John 3.18. John 3.18. When you say the word condemnation, that's where my mind flies to John 3.18 because that's where all of us come from and where all of us are born into. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Of course, he's very informative in the next verse to tell you where the condemnation comes from, because you and I love sin by nature. And this is the condemnation, verse 19, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. All right. And the condemnation that we just read about, children of wrath even as others, for till the elect are effectually called and justified, they are called children of wrath even as others. Now, that word wrath, children of wrath, does that ring a bell or turn on a light as to the precarious existence of every person that you know who is not a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? The wrath spoken of is not the wrath of man, which can be brutal, but the wrath of a sin-avenging God who spared not his own son. It's an eternal wrath. It's an everlasting punishment for sin. And that's demanded by the law and by the justice of God. No one escapes. No one can find a loophole in God's justice. There's not a clever lawyer enough to do that. Every sin must be paid for with sinless blood. And every portion of God's law must be kept perfectly to obtain eternal life. That's the only two things you have to do not to be under the wrath of God. Are you getting the picture? Nowhere to turn. Guilty without help or strength in this world. In fact, stinking dead spiritually and caring nothing about yourself except to please the flesh. A miracle of grace has to take place and it happens like we read in Ephesians 2, 4, then the mercy of grace appeared. And guess what? It only happens to the elect. You see, it's God that justifies. 
He finds out a way to acquit them according to the terms of the gospel, even those who are obnoxious to God's vengeance. He shows a clear and sure way of pardon. Look at Romans 3, verse 19. Romans 3, 19. Nineteen through twenty-two. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all. And upon all them that believe, for there's no difference. Now there is mercy for any penitent believer that will ask for mercy. Now what is justification? Well, first, it's the pardon of our sins, and second, it's the acceptance of us as righteous in Christ. We need pardon of our sins because we are sinners. God does not vindicate us as innocent, but pardons us as guilty. Somehow, most people still have the idea that God saves nice people that he saves good people. Christ himself said he came to save sinners and not the righteous. Look at Luke 5.32. Might as well refresh yourself with that. Luke 5.32. And if you don't have it marked in your Bible, mark it. And Jesus answering said unto them, verse 31, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And sinners are not vindicated, but pardoned. You don't make a person innocent by giving them a pardon, but you pardon them. That's how you set them free. And that's Romans 4, verses 6 and 7. Romans 4, 6, and 7. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, justification never shows forth our innocency because we don't have any. But it's a showing of God's great mercy and a free discharge of all of our sins. Now, sometimes justification is set forth in Scripture as a blotting out. Look at Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 43, 25. You're all getting better at turning. I, 
Even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. It's sometimes called a blotting out. Also in Isaiah 38, 17, it's described just a little bit differently. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. And no matter which way God turns, they still behind his back. They stay behind his back. He does not see them. And then one more thing. It's in Micah 7.19. You're going to say, uh-oh. Jonah, Micah. Right after Jonah. Micah 7.19. A great scripture. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. And when it says into the sea, that means lost, forgotten, and cannot be recovered. Now the second part of justification is to be made righteous in Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, those things are all in Christ. You'd never work any of that up yourself. Now, some people try to. They try to make their own righteousness. By education, they try to gain their own wisdom. By trying to keep the law, they try to obtain their own sanctification and therefore becoming their own redeemer. But it don't work that way. Now turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and it's going to tell you kind of how this takes place. For he hath made him to be sin for us or the sin offering who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now that's as if he that's as if we had suffered in person. It's an exchange. It's called imputation. Christ suffered in our stead. But you and I know that we did not suffer in person. So how can this be? It's called imputation. You, the sinner, are made righteous by imputation because you believe that Christ is your substitute. Ever hear of a better deal than that? What do I mean, substitute? I mean he took your place in judgment, suffered the eternal wrath of God for your sins, and paid for your sins with his life and with his blood, which means he died for you. Now, ever hear of a more rotten deal than that? First Peter 3.18, turn there a moment, that'll explain to you about a rotten deal. First Peter 3.18, for Christ, 
also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Nothing good about that deal. Except for us, our side, the unjust. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The just for the unjust. Does that say much to you? Is there anything fair in that exchange? Our sins for his righteousness. He who is holy and detests sin and we who are unholy sinners and hate righteousness. What an exchange. He who is the majestic creator of heaven and earth who needs nothing at all becomes a worm. Is that in the Bible? We'll turn to Psalm 22, 6. Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Now, that's the comparison. He calls himself a worm when he left his throne in heaven to become a man. Can you imagine comparing a worm to a human being? But that's the step down. Not even, it's just an example of this step down from being God to becoming a man. Well, look at Philippians 2, 7 and 8. That'll explain it to you. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. It says, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And we, loving our darkness and loving our sinful life, according to John 3.19, for men's deeds were evil and they loved darkness, without a decent thought toward God, is that in the scriptures? We'll turn to Genesis 6.5. Not a thought, Genesis 6, 5. And this is after 2,000 years of civilization. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Come right in. We, you got a Bible? All right. Now you say, well, hold on a minute. That's way back there in the Old Testament. We have progressed as human beings. Oh, have we? Paul updates you a few thousand years and says in Titus 3 3, and let's see what he says there in Titus 3 3. Titus 3 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Oh, we've progressed, have we, from Genesis? You really think so? Well, take a look at Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 19. Ephesians 4.
This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So we've improved, have we? Well, let's sum it all up in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. We've just given you a little idea of the nature of humanity. Every person born since Adam. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, and such were some of you, but you're washed. That's the big difference in being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. It makes a change. All of those others in that whole list that do not get washed split hell wide open when they quit breathing. Okay, you're washed, sanctified, and justified. Is that what it says? Yes, look at that verse 11. You're washed, sanctified, and justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus. And what's the operating method? By the Spirit of our God. It's God's Holy Spirit that does all three of those things for the sinner. O oh, sinner, come to Christ. The only way to make your calling and election sure. If you don't, all the accusations made against you will stand in the day of judgment and you will suffer the wrath of God forever against your sins. Now, why do I say make your calling and election sure? Well, look at Second Peter. Look at Second Peter, because this fellow who's supposed to be the first pope says it. And if the first pope says something, do it. Everybody should. Second Peter one ten. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. What's your calling? As the day God quickened your heart, light came into the darkness of your mind and heart when you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very, very wonderful experience when that happens in life doesn't happen to very many. Now, there's a lot of folks go to church all of their life, but they never hear the gospel preached, how Christ is a substitute for lost sinners. But the great part is he invites anybody to come to him. Anybody at all, turn to Matthew 11. Here's the great invitation, not from the preacher, not from the church, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Matthew 11:28. We use this every service to close with to show you that it's the Lord who does the inviting. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can't beat that. That's from God himself. That's from the one who came down from heaven and became the God-man so that he could die for you. See, being God, he couldn't die. Being the God-man, he could. Because he was flesh and blood. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Little qualification there. You've got to labor, you should be heavy laden, or you won't come. You see, people that have everything the rich, the popular, the talented they never come because they never have a burden. They're never heavy laden. And it's generally the poor folks. It's folks like us, the common folks, that the gospel comes to and the Lord says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. We're all laboring and heavy laden. And the reason why we know that is because God's Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That's what we're laboring under. That's our burden. And as sinners you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost sinners. So there's the invitation. Now, how sure is it? How sure is it that if you do come, that he won't turn his back on you? We'll turn to John 6 and look at verse 37. Say you're such a wicked sinner that you have never given it the idea. You wouldn't think God even cared about you. Well, he did say come. And his, his, God can't lie, so come. But John 6.37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come. And him that cometh to me I'll in no wise cast out. So there you are. Just come. He will not turn his back on you. He won't cast you out. He receives sinners. That's the only kind he receives, the sinners, lost sinners. Came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's about the end of our little Bible study this morning. Sounds like a little preaching here, but we won't be preaching until the next hour. So let's bow our heads for a moment. Father, we thank you for this solemn hour of Bible study. For our Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up and sinners are brought low. We ask thy spirit to open all of our hearts to receive truth from thy word. Thank you for thy word. Thank you for each one here this morning. Ask you to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in each heart. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, you've got